Hi everyone, welcome to episode 2 of Align by Line, where we read and discuss original poems about life topics and various wonderment. Written, narrated, and conversed by your hosts, Jasmine Lawrence and Joshua Kernia. We hope that you had a chance to listen to our first episode that we launched two weeks ago. But right now, we are moving to our second one. This is very exciting. When Jasmine and I started this podcast, we said this would be a trial and error because we have never done podcasts before. And so the fact that we are launching the second episode, it really encourages us to keep going and to keep recording, to keep writing poems and to keep having this hard live conversations a lot of times. And so that's a perfect segue to give you guys a little bit of snippet to our second episode. This episode's topic is a little bit more personal to both of us, and that is about overcoming racial biases. Jasmine and I are both person of color. Jasmine grew up in the United States. I grew up in Jakarta, Indonesia, before I moved to the U.S. almost 10 years ago. And just like any other people of color out there, we had racial biases growing up and stereotypes that might be wrong that can be frustrating a lot of times that come with our skin color, with our heritage, with our upbringing. And so we decided to do this episode because we want to share those stories and to have an open discussions and being able to converse and to banter and to talk it out loud and share with other people out there with the hope that it would offer some new fresh perspectives and it would resonate with some people out there. Just like our first episode, this episode is not scripted and our whole podcast and and our future episodes will not be scripted. We want this podcast to be as organic and as authentic as possible. Hopefully, you guys will enjoy this episode. Jasmine, is there anything you'd like to share about yourself? Since, you know, this topic, as I said before, is a bit more personal to us that you want to share to the listeners before we get started. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'd absolutely love to give you guys a chance to um, to get to know us a, a bit more personally. Uh, for me, I grew up on the East Coast in the U.S. I have several siblings uh, on my mom's end. I've got three sisters, and, and for my dad, I've got another sister and a brother, so big family. Both my mom and my dad served in the military. They were in the Army, so hmm. that definitely meant we traveled quite a lot. Um, in my life, I've probably moved 25 different times and lived wow. in many different regions of the country. I spent a lot of time in New York and New Jersey in my kind of elementary school, high school years to study computer science at Georgia Tech. So I've got a few years living in the South, which was an interesting experience, both positive and negative, but I really did enjoy my time. And I absolutely miss Waffle House. And um, (laughs) maybe in the last five years, (laughs) we will (laughs) definitely go uh, together once all this COVID stuff clears up and we can do planes again. 
I moved to Seattle after that. So it was my first experience in the Pacific Northwest. Lots of rain, lots of hiking. Uh, we'll share some experiences and poems mm -hmm. about nature in the future. That'll be fun. Mm -hmm. And then I spent um, recently the last three years in San Francisco. So very much in the tech space mm -hmm. in, the, in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. So, you know, being in all these different areas of the country, I've seen, you know, lots of different political perspectives and, and, you know, even just down to the hobbies that people engage in because of the structure of nature. Um, I've definitely seen different clusters of different communities. And, you know, with that little bit of background, I will, um, I'll pass it over to you to share, you know, just a bit about kind of where and, and how you grew up. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. So for me, I grew up, as I said before, I grew up in Jakarta in Indonesia. And for those of you guys who don't know, Indonesia is the largest uh, Muslim country in the world. It's the most populous country, uh, Muslim country in the world. Um, and so, yeah, I grew up there, spent the first 18 years of my life. I grew up Christian, and so I was definitely a minority there. And in terms of even uh, my, my race, my great-grandparents uh, came from China. So I would say it's like a Chinese Indonesian, kind of the same within the U.S. where you have people coming in from Vietnam, for example, and there would be second, third generation of Vietnamese American here. This is the same thing in, in my case, but in Indonesia. So I spent the first 18 years, I grew up there and I moved to the U.S. starting college. This was back in 2012. At the time, I was already in the process, you know, of getting a green card and U.S. citizen. So coming here, I already knew that, okay, I'm going to be in the U.S. permanently. And so I came to the U.S. The first time I stepped my foot in this country was in Iowa, in Ames, Iowa. I went to <laughs> Iowa State University. Oh, cool. And so coming in from this giant, diverse, metropolitan third world city of Jakarta into this tiny 60,000 <laughs> college town where you're surrounded by cornfields, farms, Walmarts, and Hy-Vees. Like literally every weekend, my form of entertainment would be to go to Walmart and just walk around the aisles. Just people watching? <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Oh, I totally missed that. You know, like Iowa... Uh, it's definitely, I would say, maybe 90% of the population is white. So I, I was definitely a minority there as well. And I got to learn a lot of things, met a lot of people. But, you know, there's definitely some good and bad experiences that way. From there, I moved to Orlando, Florida. I was um, working there. And then I moved to L.A. I was in L.A. for a year and then I moved to the Bay Area two and a half years ago. Mountain View first, and then I moved to San Francisco proper a year and a half ago. And now here I am. Yeah. So in this, in the first episode, I read my poem first. So in the second episode, we thought, let's have Jasmine uh, read hers first, and then we'll follow up with, you know, the usual conversations. And then I'll read my poem and then conversations again. Yeah, whenever you are ready, Jasmine. I'll be reading a poem called Children of the Slave. Children of the Slave, born into bondage, 
The blood that they gave can be found in the sondage. They fought for our futures so we could be free, not so we could die of police brutality. Callous in the hands, strong in the hearts, everlasting hopefuls, they set us apart. Now it's our battleground. Now it's our fight. Do not go gentle into that good night. That is something. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Can you walk us through your thinking when you were writing this poem? Yeah, absolutely. This poem was created probably maybe midsummer. There were a lot of protests going on following the deaths of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. And uh, this was something that after just consuming way too much media about what was happening and, and, and what was going on and how people were reacting and responding, I, I wanted to both express my acknowledgement of what people had done in the past, what our, what my ancestors had done in the past. I don't know if I mentioned I'm African-American black born in the U S mm-hmm. and so when I started, you know, this was also a difficult time because this year we lost John Lewis, who was a civil rights activist, um, who mm-hmm. I actually had the honor of meeting while I was in Atlanta at Georgia Tech. Mm-hmm. And, and we also lost um, Chadwick Boseman. And mm-hmm. so, so this poem came um, the weekend after his death. And it, it, it was meant to be a rallying cry to all of my Black brothers and sisters that this is our fight and that we don't have to just wait for the big civil rights titans of our past that we can step up and become become the next generation that continues to advocate for for the changes that we want to see in society mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um so i was reading one of your lines here and i i, I feel like it's a it's a very strong poem because it calls for kind of like an action it lights a little bit of fire in your heart, especially at the very like last paragraph that you have. You said, now it's our battleground. Now it's our fight. Do not go gentle into that good night. And I just feel like it's it's a quick progression from the beginning where you were talking about, I want to hear from you, what's your aim when you were writing this of what the message that you're trying to convey the most to the listeners that rallying cry, that boldness, that engagement of, okay, you know where we came from. You know what's already come before us. You see what's happening. This is our opportunity. Mm-hmm. They, mm-hmm. you know, my ancestors had these, like I said, callous hands, picking cotton, you know, being a hose down, you know, just going through so many trials. And yeah. now it's now it's our turn. You know, maybe it's it doesn't look the same way, but we have to find mm-hmm. whatever way we want to engage uh, mm-hmm. to fight for the the future uh, yeah. of what e- yeah. justice or equality looks like. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Got it, got it. I'm sure as a lot of our listeners know as well, and we all experience in 2020, there is the Black Lives Matter uh, movement that happened. I'm curious to hear from you, if you feel comfortable sharing, how does that impact you in some ways? And how does it feel, you know, like just how does it feel from your end? And when you say about these things, especially in your last paragraph about like, this is our time to do an action, to make a a difference and to honor what has been done in the past by your ancestors. So does that movement, does that uh, revolution, uh, how does that impact you basically? And what, what do you think about the whole thing? 
the 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 Black Lives Matter movement is not something that happened. It's something that is actively mm-hmm. happening. I feel like it is just an af- if anything to me, it is an affirmation of truth that is mm-hmm. not fully recognized. And it's not just recognized in conscious thought, like, okay, yeah, Black Lives Matter, right, got it. It's, yeah. it's the action and the acknowledgement and, and the behavior change that results of saying like, okay, if something matters to you, mm-hmm. you treat it differently. You treat it with respect. You give it the same focus and attention and priority that you give to other things that matter to you. For me, it's something that I really do kind of project onto myself. And and by mm-hmm. that, I mean, I have to sometimes look at myself and affirm that you mm-hmm. do, you do, that I do matter, right? That I do yeah. count, even though I might be some small minority, you know, whether it be mm-hmm. racially or by gender or whatever, because, you know, if you put those two together, the numbers, especially in the field I work in of tech, of robotics, it's, it's very small. And so it's, yeah. it's, it's nice that we, it's nice that it's something that I can personally anchor to and remind myself that even when other things might make me feel like I don't matter or I don't count or oh, I'm such a small percentage of whatever mm-hmm. community that I, it's okay for me to be neglected or ignored or mistreated that I can, I can say that as a reminder to myself, I can live that, that my life does matter. It also is an empowering and, um, and energizing for me that yeah. it does matter because it just motivates me to do more with it. When I think about what people went through so that I could vote so that I could go to, a great school like Georgia Tech so that I could even mm-hmm. freely travel the country without papers or passes or yeah. permission. Like these mm-hmm. types of things I I, I want to honor. And then when you said, you know, your question about, you know, this is our battleground, this is our fight. I, I really had to look at myself and go, you know, what am I actually doing to try and make change? Yeah. Um, and initially, you know, my primary focus is trying to mentor and uplift other, right? Other people and mm-hmm. trying to share opportunities, whether it's through inspiration or motivation or mentoring. You know, I do a lot of talking speeches and and, and one-on-one mentoring with lots of different uh, different people, specifically people of color who are interested in breaking mm-hmm. through in tech and in, and in beauty and just generally in entrepreneurship. I, I give a lot mm-hmm. of my time to that. I also give financially, but this year was different for me. This year we had a big election in the U.S., um, mm-hmm. yep. just a huge election. And I'm actually, I always vote, but I haven't been, I'll just say like super politically active. And this mm-hmm. year I, I volunteered as a poll worker because I just felt like I wanted to be a part of yeah. enabling people to use their voice because mm-hmm. of, of just mm-hmm. what I heard about communities of color specifically and the challenges that they face with being um, understaffed and under-equipped and, and mm-hmm. you know, even just with COVID going around, a lot yeah. of the people who who volunteer are, again, our ancestors, our elders, the older community who is more vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And so I thought this is the smallest way of putting my, <laughs> putting yeah. my life on the line to mm-hmm. make sure that mm-hmm. other people, specifically people of color, can have opportunity. You know, whether I'm serving in a in an in, in a neighborhood that is just people of color or those who um, who are othered by some other mean, you know, by their sexuality or by their income, I just wanted to make myself available. I just wanted to be able to take that kind of risk because I thought the opportunity and that I'm creating for others to make a difference or at least that to feel like they matter in the same way that yeah. you know Black Lives Matter to me, um, to mm. create that opportunity for others. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. For me, it's the same too. This year was the very first time I've ever voted actually in my life because 
I moved here before I could actually vote. And then when I moved here, I was waiting to get my citizenship. And then finally this year I could vote. And that's my, my, uh, my portion about making change this year a little bit too. <laughs> oh, well, thank you for voting. Um, yeah, for sure. It was definitely a, a new experience for me as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's three key things I wanted to touch on. I wanted to touch on the depth of the history that we're talking mm -hmm. about when we talk about slavery mm -hmm. in America, right? Hundreds of years of slaves being brought over from Africa against their will. And uh, the line that I have, the blood that they gave can be found in the sondage. This was like me trying to find a really good rhyme for bondage. And so I think we, we had talked mm. earlier this week about Rhyme Zone. It's a website that I go to whenever I'm trying to find just that perfect word to capture mm -hmm. what I mean. And yeah. um, and so I just discovered the word sondage. And it's a it's an actually yeah, what is, it's what, an archaeological. Yeah, it's an archaeological um, activity that they do where essentially they'll like bore into the ground you know, mm. like, let's say we went outside and we bored into the ground. The first mm. layer might be like dirt and topsoil. And if we go deeper, there might be some rocks and gravel. And if you go deeper, there might even be some like, I don't know, coal or water mm. or something like that. And so a sondage is great to figure out, okay, what is the, what is the earth below me made of? What does it consist of? And, mm -hmm. you know, slavery has shaped our nation in so many ways. And I'm sure that yeah. there's just not an area of, of society that is not touched um, by slavery or by contributions of African-Americans. And you know, specifically, if you go to the South, <laughs> we dig deep enough, you yeah. probably can find not just bone, uh, blood, but bones and clothing and journals and just so mm -hmm. much history um, that has been buried um, you know, just through the ages. So the number one thing I wanted to do is just recognize this goes really deep, really deep. And we have to dig into it to see it because it's been buried by time. Um, the second thing I, I just want to call out yeah. that you know, all of the people who had fought for us before, Martin Luther King, John Lewis, so many others, mm -hmm. you know, they wanted us to be able to go to desegregated schools to be treated as equals. And I think there's been a lot of progress made in society in terms of the privileges that we have and 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 strides towards equality in in balance in in the race, you know, between races. But um, mm -hmm. but just this resurgence, this visibility of the of the thousands of deaths that are happening, um, yeah. you know, un, mm -hmm. unintentionally or intentionally by the hands mm -hmm. of of police, it's it's shocking, and I don't think this is the future that our ancestors wanted for us. So I just wanted to also just be blunt and be blatant and just call mm. that out. This is relevant to what is happening right now. And, mm -hmm. and just, uh, I read this, I saw this image and it said, police brutality is not, is not happening more. It's just getting filmed, right? That awareness, that visibility, saying that language and acknowledging it as something that's really happening, regardless of like where you land on solutions to it it's happening. There are altercations, there are lives being lost. And, you know, it's a, it's a struggle mm -hmm. on both mm -hmm. sides. And then the last thing to wrap it up, I, I, I wanted to hit exactly what you mentioned. How does it feel uh, being black in those communities that you've lived with? Has that shaped you in any way of shape or form? Uh, has that shifted your thinking a little bit or perspectives growing up? Yeah. So being, being, <laughs> what is it like being black in America? That is a, is such a hard question to answer. I think it's very nuanced and very different mm -hmm. for lots of people. For me, uh, oh, like you, just like you, I would say I, I was raised Christian. I was raised to just love everybody regardless of what they look like, where they're from and, and even how they treat you. Uh, and so for me, it's something that I would definitely say in my early years, I, 
I tried to ignore personally. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I never wanted to yeah. like come off. Never just think about it or yeah. make a big deal out of it, right? It, when it, you were exactly. And it, yeah. you know, when I was applying for, let's say like scholarships for college, that's when it was like, oh, mm-hmm. you should apply for this because they're trying to, you know, do this diversity inclusion thing or you should blah blah mm-hmm. blah. And and I'm like, okay, that's <laughs> that's Mm -hmm. that's interesting um Mm -hmm. those designations even um you know people counting the percentage of what countries are represented or races or genders are represented in their in their universities it was the first time i kind of saw this type of accounting that made me self-reflect on the bigger picture of things in -hmm. terms of saying Mm -hmm. like okay why why are they trying to accommodate me in this way what are they balancing for um Mm -hmm. it's i don't think it's I don't think it's inappropriate to say that education, our current, you know, U.S. education system doesn't give a balanced perspective on how how slavery has impacted the lives and and rights and just economic opportunities of of mm-hmm. of, of black people. But yeah, I would say definitely there were starting in high school just cliques and groups of people who clustered, mm-hmm. you know, to just find a sense of community and safety. Nothing wrong with that. But I can look back into some photos and see like, oh, yeah, I had some groups of, you know, mixed groups of friends. But then I definitely had, you know, some black girlfriends that I would hang out with and, Mm -hmm. you know, things like that. And but, yeah, it was definitely Mm -hmm. in college, you know, when I joined um, the National Society of Black Engineers and, Mm -hmm. you know, versus joining something like ACM, which is um, a, a computing society and and just seeing how just. I don't know. Underrepresented feels like the wrong term, but just like how clear of a divide there were um, in these communities and just how rare it was for someone who, I don't know, looked like me to be in yeah. these to be in these spaces. It was um, it was it was strange. I won't I mean, I'm not going to call out any like, oh, here's mm. specific instances of where I was personally mm. discriminated against and like put people mm. on the spot and like tell scary stories about, yeah, you know, what this life was like. But it was just. Yeah. I'm I'm sure I'm sure you have experienced those things, but I don't think yeah I don't think we need to go into the details here. But yeah, I would just um, say that yeah. the the revelation to me was mm-hmm. just seeing the like the counting has always has always stuck out to me, and in trying to really self educate about about why you know, why are there Mm. programs that exist like that? And like, what is the actual state of, let's say, Black home ownership or Black entrepreneurship or, you know, like, how are things leveling out because people are, you know, because people are counting. And the number, the the word I hear, you know, more than I hear the word underrepresented is probably disproportionate, right? Like there's a Mm -hmm. disproportionate Mm -hmm. amount of Black people getting infected by COVID-19. And you have to say, okay, why, right? There's a disproportionate number of uh, black men in our prisons. And Mm -hmm. you just have to be like, well, well, why? And, you know, those conversations, I I never had those conversations with my family or or with my Mm. friends. They just kind of, these are the statistics. And and when you're in that, when you're in that group Mm. (laughs) of people who are disproportionately in some negative, in some negative group or some negative, you know, Mm. reflection, you have to ask Mm. like, how did I, escape that or how did I miss that or mm-hmm. why did those people mm-hmm. end up there because those they're not they're not that different from me and the common theme is that underlying that you know it's that race piece and and, the, yeah. and now you know now that I've learned a bit more it's it's the opportunity it's the oppression just the systematic nature of how things were designed to be 
to be how they are. That was, mm -hmm. yep. that was new for me. Yeah. I, I feel like these are the topics that we rarely talk about or even think about in our, to ourselves. Yeah. Thank you for your questions. I appreciate that. Yeah. Is there anything else that you like to share uh, about your poem, about your experience growing up? Is there anything else that you like to share? The last thing I want to share about the poem is just the last line. It's uh, do not go gentle into that good night. That is a, a quote and a reflection on a poem of the same name. Do not go gentle into that good night by Dylan Thomas. So I just wanted to recognize and acknowledge that uh, I do read a lot of other uh, poetry and, and poems by other poets um, just through the just through the ages to get inspired by the the language and the experiences of, of different times so if you haven't read that po poem here's your you know first line by line homework assignment um, mm -hmm. check it out and see if you don't get that same kind of inspiring feel of combating whatever darkness exists whether it's race or poverty or uh, sustainability or climate change or whatever it happens to be see if that poem doesn't also ignite you uh, mm -hmm. to to be actively engaging in the change that you want to see in the world yeah thanks um, Josh. well yeah. let's let's hear your poem let's hear yeah the poem that you've got together for today yeah for sure so i will be reading a poem that i wrote called yellow Yellow. I am yellow. Yes, the color yellow. Being yellow is never easy. Being yellow means inferior to other colors. Being yellow means being almost transparent. Being yellow means it is easy to be lightened by white or layered and smudged by dark colors. Being yellow means being a highlighter for something of more importance. Lost in translation, mistakenly seen as white, mistakenly overlooked. Being yellow is feminine. Being a yellow boy is hard. Heck, being a yellow man is hard when it is only a mere splatter on a white or dark colored wall. Can yellow be visible? Can yellow be heard loud and clear? Can yellow insert itself assertively amongst other colors? Can yellow actually be a spotlight? It is against the odds. It is a rare sighting, like a yeti in the Himalayas or a plate of jasmine rice in Alaska. But when yellow goes dark, it pops. A strong yellow screams for attention. A strong yellow is seen from miles away. A strong yellow is a top layer. A strong yellow is a spectrum that adds character to other colors. A strong yellow ignites fire on a white winter day. A strong yellow is a formidable voice. I am yellow. A strong yellow. A proud yellow. I am yellow. Wow. Yep. There's a lot That's in there. <laughs> There's there, a lot of yellow in that. <laughs> there is a lot in there. Wow. Well, why don't you just take me through kind of the creation of the poem? What inspired you to write this? Yeah. 
Well, I was inspired by Coldplay's song, Yellow, <laughs> as the name suggests. And I remember I, I was in the recent movie, Crazy Rich Asian. There was a, a Chinese version of that song as well, Yellow. And I just I was just inspired by by those two instances. And so I guess what I'm trying to say in this poem, it's sort of like taking this journey of the stereotypical of Asian people, of how people would perceive Asian. And a lot of times it's not a positive thing, as you can hear from, from the poem that I just read. But I think I was slowly getting to a point where I could actually embrace my race better, especially when I came to the U.S. and kind of learned about the stereotypical, but having moving moving around through different cities, different places, it kind of gives me this sense of perspectives and a sense of pride in being Asian and trying to find like what is it about my race that pops, you know, like what is it about my race that is a strength instead of always conforming to the stereotypical, the toxic stereotypical of being an Asian, especially in a place uh, like America where a lot of different races are living together and co coexisting. And we sometimes we say, oh, we're just a melting pot. But then, you know, in reality, I don't think we're quite a melting pot. For me, it's sort of like a salad bowl where when you eat a salad, you have this different uh, <laughs> uh, sort of ingredients, right, in it. and But each one highlights the dish in its own way. And that's how I see the different races that is America, where we each have our own identity. And there has to be some conflicts and some stereotypes that happened. Thank you for sharing that. I I love the concept of the salad. When I look at it, I do see all the distinct pieces. It's still kind of one group, but there are, yeah, there are definitely some conflicts. I know for me, mm -hmm. I, I don't love the cherry tomatoes in a salad. I don't like how they like <laughs> pop in my mouth, but I always ask for extra croutons. You can't get yeah, away from same. them. Um, <laughs> very cool. Um, but I, I'd love to hear what are you, what are you the most proud of, whether it be racially or culturally or or even personally? Um, despite these stereotypes, this poem definitely reflects um, what you've described as a strong yellow. So I'd love to hear from your life experiences. Mm -hmm. where, does your, where does your pride originate from? Yeah, I think for me, it's just the strength of being able to stand and still being rooted into my identity. Because, you know, like when I told earlier when i moved to the u.s for example i was dropped into this tiny town of ames iowa where 90 percent of the population is white there's really uh, a lack of diversity um in the midwest in my opinion and so i guess going through that and and this is where some of the sentences actually came from. It was just like through my my experiences living in different places in the U.S. Where, let's say, for example, being yellow means being almost transparent. Um, there were a lot of times in the past where I felt like, oh, I'm 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 talking to someone 
or like maybe I'm talking as a group, you know, and I just felt like I was very transparent. Like no one actually listened to my voice. No one actually acknowledged my opinion there because I was a minority and people see some Asian people of not having that stronger authority, not being assertive enough. And so I always tried to break that boundary and break that stereotypes. And by doing that, I think that's when I got my pride. That's when I felt like I can do this. You know, like I, I don't have to always follow people. I don't have to always feel pity about myself because of my race. You know, like that's not a thing. Like I should be proud of who I am. And even growing up in Indonesia, uh, where I was a minority as well, actually, in in terms of religion and in terms of my race, because I wasn't pure Indonesian, also having a, a big influence from the Western culture. You know, like I grew up eating American chain fast food restaurants. <laughs> I grew up watching Hollywood movies. I listened to all the the Western Hollywood music and that this is when it, I also wrote here where I said being yellow means it is easy to be lightened by white sometimes or mm -hmm. even layered and smudged by dark colors that kind of diluted my yellowness, my Asian-ness in this sense, my identity. Sometimes people would say that Asian people who were not pure from the, where their actual country um, heritage was they call it a banana because then mm. you look yellow on the outside but out inside you're white and when I wrote this line it reminded me of that but overall I feel like being Asian a lot of times we're being overlooked and we lost our identity in the midst of it my sense of strength and pride always comes from being able to still find my root and having this all influence, but still sticking through to, uh, to myself. Wow. Uh, I mean, there's something very, very similar in black community as well. Mm. The tension mm -hmm. between, uh, Africans and African-Americans. My mom, mm. my mom mm. is so big on ancestry.com. Um, and 23 mm. and me and trying to figure out, you know, where did we come from? Where are our roots? And I just, I can't imagine, you know, going to Africa and immediately feeling at home. I think there mm. would definitely be some, some mm. things like the music, the food, the dancing, the yeah. entrepreneurial spirit, um, just the, the boldness of, of the mm. people who live there that I would see myself in. But then there are some of those cultural influences that you mentioned with like, the fast food, uh, yeah. the music mm -hmm. is totally different. The the clothing mm -hmm. that we might wear, the the fashion, the concept mm -hmm. of community, the even the like values and and perspective on religion is completely um, different all over the world. But that 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 tension of of kind of yeah. just being being you and not having to be mm -hmm. pure in some way, or mm -hmm. or that the mm -hmm. concept of home is is where you are and not necessarily always where you're from. I don't know. There's, there's a whole lot yeah. there. We definitely, we definitely don't have time to cover, but I, I wanted to ask yeah. you if there is something, something that you, you know, from growing up in Indonesia that you've, that you've held on to, if it's a tradition or a cultural thing or whatever it happens to be that, 
despite all of the influence or the the lightning that you've experienced that you've kind of never let go of is there anything mm-hmm. like that um i'm gonna hold off to that question because i wanted to go back a little bit to what you said before sure. um that tension between African-American and African. In my case, it was through language and my look. Because mm-hmm. I, for, you know, like, let's say if I go to China, people would immediately think, oh, I can speak Chinese. And because I, I look like an East Asian because my ancestors came from China, even though uh, my parents were born in Indonesia. And, and I couldn't speak Chinese at all. And so I always have this contradiction of my look versus what I speak. Mm. And that was also kind of an identity uh, questioning a lot of times, right? And then when I, when I said, oh, I couldn't speak Chinese, then people would think, well, you look Chinese. Why can't you speak Chinese? And they would get mad of it or like they got disappointed. And then when I moved to the U.S., it's... It's not just that, but when I was in Iowa, for example, and I would be speaking to my peers or to my professors or, you know, just like the community there in in college town, they would always be so surprised. They said, why are your English so good? You know, because I I don't look like them and I don't, uh, my face doesn't say that I could speak English that well. And so to me, people might think that it is a compliment, but a lot of times I do feel like, where is my identity then? Sorry, uh, going back to your question. Oh no, uh, thank you. No, thank you for thank you for bringing that up. I just think that there are just so many. There's so many parallels, even though you know the circumstances are mm-hmm. are different. Just having that expectation of you know those language skills being tied to your race or that Mm -hmm. um that perspective it's 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 very tough i mean it's again i'll just echo back to another thing from the black community it's like Mm. you know you've probably heard of the concept of 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 code switching right of having to kind of mod modify your actions and behaviors so that you can fit Mm. better in a specific yes environment and it just what you what you mentioned about like going to china and being expected to speak Chinese, but then mm. not speaking Chinese and then coming mm. to the US and, you know, being like, oh, your English is so good. When you're like, what? What about yeah. me made you think that it wouldn't be, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it would be of any quality at all? Like that's just, mm-hmm. that prejudgment is, is very similar of like, you know, just the proper way to speak and the way that we use language. And um, I just wanted mm-hmm. to, before we go back to that question, I just want to say that mm-hmm. I don't think any of those things, I think they are and they are not your identity, right? Mm. Like they're, they're Mm. definitely a part of who you are and, you know, uh, people external to you can have perspectives and attitudes and whatever they want towards them. But I feel like, Mm. like you said, that pride that you find in the acceptance of yourself and acknowledgement of your strengths and the things that you love and, and how you use those things to make change or make a difference in the world. I think that's what really that's what really matters. So please mm-hmm. do. Yeah, please do. Tell me if there's a if there's something from 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 home from that yeah. that past life that yeah. that has always stuck with you despite the influences yeah. of the west. I think it was family for me. Family is such a big importance growing up in a traditional Asian household. 
we take care of each other, we take care of our parents. There's no such thing where here in America, for example, you're 18 and then you're out, cutting uh, <laughs> your relationship a little bit between parents and kids. Back in Asia, parents, even when they are really old, they still live with their children because that is the customary. There's this sense of tightness in a family, even though as you as you grow up, as you are an adult, you have a family, you still have an obligation and a responsibility to take care of the elders. And not just the elders, but even to your siblings, you're supposed to help each other. You're supposed mm -hmm. to lend money, to give money, or when they are in need and when they are desperate, we have to help each other. So there's always, a, I feel like, a very strong sense of honor and even not just an immediate family, but my extended family. The other thing is sharing food. You know, <laughs> I, I, uh, I grew up in such a food-centric culture and family. We all love eating food and cooking and sharing food and hosting people. And so there is always a joy when you're able to sit on a table and share food and it's when we um, connect with each other. It's when businesses happen, for example. It's just a very central part of the Asian culture. And so I think I really brought that when I, when I came to the U.S., when I assimilated here, when I became a U.S. citizen last year. That's always uh, two things that I try to really captain myself, that I always try to hold high. Um, really embrace it in myself. I really think that's, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, you and I are part of the same church family in mm -hmm. San Francisco. We both go to Epic Church. That's kind of how we met. And uh, the sharing food has definitely been a really fun, I don't know. I think it's been really fun that we've been sharing baked goods and, and different <laughs> treats with each other over the last few weeks. Um, did not like the durian. Sorry. Just have to call <laughs> that out. Not a fan. Could not handle it. Um, Love durian. But uh, <laughs> but but I do appreciate. Yeah, I do I do feel that, and I, I've personally experienced just your love of your of your sister and your parents, um, just in knowing you. And um, I think that's even how we first started hanging out was just sharing a meal together and kind of bonding over that. And yeah, I love that, I love that you haven't. <laughs> I love that you haven't <laughs> let that go, um, despite the environment that you're in. That might make you or encourage you to um, to downplay that or to to value other things. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Another another question I have for you is, yeah, yeah. Um, I just love your last, you know, kind of area where you're like a strong yellow screams for attention. A strong yellow, a strong yellow is a formidable voice. It's a it, it ignites a fire on a white winter day. That one was like, bam! I love that line. Yeah. Um, my question was, mm -hmm. you know, do you have any strong yellow role models that exemplify mm. these traits of? you know, mm -hmm. being bold, of being a formidable voice, of being uh, someone who ignites a fire um, that inspires you? Hmm. Good question. Because my, my grandma, she was a fighter. This is a story that my dad used to tell me and still tells me to this day. She was a single mother, uh, not, and not from the beginning. I think my grandpa passed away when my dad was in high school and 
they were really struggling. My 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 grandma raised my dad and his sister just by herself, and at times they were actually homeless for a little bit. And she was really a fighter. Like she 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 didn't even graduate primary school. I think oh. I think sixth grade is her her highest education. And she really worked hard. She used to sell clothings from door to door uh, in a traditional market back in Jakarta. And she managed to put my dad and my aunt to college all the way till they graduate college degree. I just couldn't handle it in my, in my brain. Like, how could someone be that strong, you know, just like holding the family together, being a single mother mm-hmm. and having their kids to be as successful as they are right now. Um, my grandma passed away uh, in 2009 and I was 15 years old at the time. And so, yeah, I just, I, and even, even then when I was growing up, my grandma was the, the person who always brought our family together and that would make me so close. And I grew up with my cousins because of her bringing us together. I felt like I had a really close, tight-knit family, extended family growing up. It was because of my grandmother. And so I feel like she just had so much influence to to my family to me when I grew up that I really brought into today, you know, like my characters and my upbringing was influenced by her in in a lot of ways. My parents are the same. I mean, they sacrificed so much for me and my sister to be able to pursue education here in the U S and to have a better life in the U S and the better future. Um, And I think this goes back again to the idea of putting family first how we really love each other in in a family and oftentimes we don't say i love you that's a, that's actually a very good note as well cuz in the western culture we say i love you to family as just like a a very normal thing right you just say it and after a phone call you just say i love you bye you know but in in the asian culture saying i love you is just so not the norm it's so different. Oh, that's fantastic. The the struggle yeah. the struggle is real. Yes. And um yeah. I'm glad that, you know, for whatever your parents and your grandmother went through that you became the person that you are today to to yeah. share this poem and 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 these experiences with us on our second episode of our podcast. All right. Well, that was that was a lot. I think we had a pretty good conversation. Your your poem was fantastic. Your poem really inspired me. I think I might do a, like a cover or a parody with uh <laughs> with with other with other colors. Um yeah, yeah thank you yeah. so much for 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 creating for for sharing what you wrote today. Thank you all for listening to episode 2 of A Line by Line. Um we hope that in some way our conversation was was meaningful or insightful mm-hmm. and and that you learned a little bit more about us personally but also that maybe you could see yourself or or gain empathy from another from another perspective of life that you that you learned today by by tuning in yeah and i also want to acknowledge that 
this is a really hard topic to talk through. You know, it's a <laughs> it's a very personal topic. It's it's a long topic that we can just you know talk endlessly. I feel like, uh, but we're trying to stick within our time limit. If you guys feel like we should talk about it more. If this is a area of interest, feel free to reach out to us to let us know what you think. And maybe we can do a part two or like a continuation of this topic. Cause this is definitely a, a bigger topic in our, in our season. I agree. And it's an yeah. important topic. I'm glad that we had this opportunity to be open and, and be vulnerable um, about kind of what we've experienced through life and how it's changed us, inspired us, hurt us, grown us, made us who we are. Thank you all for tuning in. Uh, this has been a line by line with Jasmine Lawrence and Joshua Kernia. Thank please, you guys. Yeah, please don't forget to uh, follow us on whatever platform you're listening to, as well as on our Instagram or Facebook or Twitter at a line by line. Uh, take care of yourself and uh, be gentle to those around you. We will see you soon on episode three. See you in episode three. Bye.